Let us turn in God's word to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. When the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the Cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. The battle between the Philistines and Israel at Aphak is in actual fact a two-part engagement. The first encounter is described in verses 1 to 2, and then the second encounter in verses 10 to 11. The first encounter was a defeat for Israel with the loss of 4,000 men. The second encounter was far worse. And it is described vividly for us there in verses 10 and 11 in six paintbrush strokes. Israel was smitten. They fled every man into his tent. There was a very great slaughter. There fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. The ark of God was taken. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were slain. Notice the last two brush strokes in particular in verse 11. The ark of God was taken and the priests were slain. Israel's super weapon as they thought the ark of God and the priests. What Israel thought would be for them and on their side that very weapon they had hoped would destroy the Philistines didn't work. The priests were slain and what is more the ark of God was taken away into captivity. So this was not just a defeat for Israel it was a complete humiliation for the nation. And we have to ask why. Why did God do this? And the Bible tells us why God did it. This humiliation made a great impact on the prophets for generations to come. They refer to it. This humiliation made a great impact on the Psalter because it's referred to in the Psalms in Psalm 78. Israel tempted God. Israel didn't keep the testimonies of God. Israel turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They moved him to jealousy with their graven images. And whenever God heard this and saw this, he was wroth. And he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. The tent he placed there among men. And he delivered his strength, this ark, into captivity and even his glory into the enemy's hands and he gave his people over to the sword and he was wroth with his inheritance and he consumed their young men 
and their maidens were not given to marriage, and their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. And that's referring to this history in 1 Samuel 4. It was because of Israel's sin, so that's the explanation of chapter 4. The amazing thing is that both sides are surprised that the super weapon, the Ark of the Covenant, has not worked. Not just Israel shocked and surprised, but even the Philistines were surprised too. The Ark that Israel had trusted in, the Ark that the Philistines feared and dreaded, yet they fought on courageously nonetheless, even they were surprised that the Ark didn't do anything like it had done in Egypt. And we know this because of the two dialogues that take place in the camp before the second encounter. You will observe that the battle only gets a small detail, verses 1 and 2 for the first battle, verses 10 and 11 for the second battle. Most of the description, verses 3 through to 9, describe the camp of Abenezer and the camp of Aphak between the battles. That's where the Holy Spirit brings us in the main. First to the camp of Ebenezer, to hear what the people of God are saying there. And then he brings us into the camp of Aphak, to hear what the Philistines are saying there. And it's all very interesting, what they're saying. And God wants us to hear what they're saying. He wants us to listen. He's recorded it for us. And this morning we're going into the camp of Ebenezer, verses 3 to 5, to listen carefully to what they are saying in the camp. And God wants us to observe this and to pay attention And I think we should especially pay attention because do we have this name of our church? Ebenezer? There's an association of names. And I think the Lord is telling us to especially this morning give attention. Seeing we bear the name in the providence of God upon our church thus. And in the description of the camp, we are told that the people, that is the army, the people were come into the camp. And we know how they came into the camp. They're carrying their dead, 4,000 dead. They're carrying their wounded. They're coming in defeated. They're coming in discouraged. They're coming in disheartened. That's how they're coming into the camp at Ebenezer. Maybe we're coming in the very same way. Maybe we're coming in having been defeated this week. Maybe we're coming in here with fallen this week into sin. Maybe we've been discouraged this week. And we're coming back to the camp. We're coming back to the church, to Ebenezer, discouraged, disheartened, defeated. And of course, you're coming into the camp. You're coming to Ebenezer this morning. And you're expecting to be encouraged. You're expecting to be revived and refreshed. You're expecting to get some word of guidance, some counsel of help. And no doubt these these soldiers are coming back with this discouragement. But... Hopefully the elders will have a word. There'll be some encouragement. And that's what we are rightly to expect. We expect the ministry and the oversight of the church with the hedging of the elders of the session. We expect the church to give us help and encouragement in our following God. And may it be so every time we come here to Ebenezer. But unfortunately this particular time There wasn't much help or encouragement for them. The elders of Israel are in the camp and they commence the investigation into the defeat. It seems to be beginning well. It seems to be a good question that's being asked. So the elders said, 
Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? This is the question of inquiry. They're doing an investigation. You know things go wrong, that's what you do. You make an investigation, you do an inquiry. What has happened? Why has this happened? And so they're, they're asking the right question. They understand for a start, whenever we think about this question that they ask, wherefore hath the Lord smitten us? They understand that it's a spiritual battle. They're not questioning the military strategy. They're not questioning their numbers or looking about their weapons or the technology. That's not coming into the equation. They're not saying, what can we do better militarily wise? No, they bring the Lord in. They realize that much. It's a spiritual battle and it's up to God. Why has the Lord allowed us to be defeated? In fact, why has the Lord opposed us and defeated us himself? So they know it's a question of the Lord. It's always a question of the Lord. It's not a question of our ability. It's a question of the Lord. Wherefore has the Lord done this? So they're asking the right question. They're beginning the investigation well. They know that the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. It doesn't matter about the horses. It doesn't matter about the chariots. At the end of the day, it's a matter of, of the Lord. Whose side is the Lord on? Who's the Lord fighting for? Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. They're the great modern technology of the modern warfare in the days of Israel. Some are trusting in the chariots and the horses. But we, the people of God, we have to remember the name of the Lord. And that's what they're doing, you see. They're remembering the name of the Lord. They're doing right. Wherefore has the Lord done this? So it's a commendable question. They recognize his sovereignty. They realize that God is sovereign in this defeat. They know very well that unto God the Lord belong the issues of death. So you see then, they are what we would call strong believers in the absolute sovereignty of God. They don't doubt the power of God. They know that they weren't defeated because the Philistines are stronger than their God. They know that they were defeated because God wasn't with them. They know that much. The defeat has come down to their own divine king. The Philistines won because God smote Israel. Shall there be evil in a city? And the Lord hasn't done it. If we want to paraphrase it another way. Shall there be a defeat and the Lord hasn't brought it about? Of course not. He's the mighty sovereign God. He has brought it about. And so the elders are, are only to be commended here. We can give them that commendation because in this regard they seem to have understanding and faith. However, it, it stops her and there is a problem in their response. For a start, if you begin to examine it more closely, they say, wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? You notice they're not asking God just talking among themselves. Why has the Lord fled us? Why is the Lord not with us? Why aren't they asking God? Why aren't they humbling themselves and putting on the sackcloth and ashes? And saying, Lord, wherefore, Lord, have you let us be smitten before our enemies and allowed your name to be sullied? I don't see any of that. They're not praying. They're not seeking God. 
Why don't they ask the Lord himself? Why don't they say, Lord, wherefore have you smitten us? Why are they not praying like that? If you read the Psalms, that is what the psalmist did. That's what God's people are meant to do. For example, Psalm 74. Oh God, why hast thou cast us off? Why does thine anger prevail against the sheep of your pasture? Lord, withdraw your hand of chastening. So all these Psalms are, are saying, Wherefore, Lord? How long, Lord? Why, Lord? You know, there's nobody in the camp of Ebenezer writing out a psalm. They don't have Samuel in the camp. They don't have a psalmist in the camp. There is no one writing out a psalm. There are none of the elders to say, Lord, we need to seek you. There's none of the elders to call a time of prayer and fasting. That's not the road they're going down. So there's a great failure here on the part of the elders. Even our Lord on the cross knew how to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knew what to do on the cross in his calamity, in his woe. And he come down to the right answer. Thou art holy. Thou art holy. And that's what Israel should have been saying, Lord, why have you forsaken us? Why are you not with us? Has it something to do with your holiness? And with sin on us or in us? They're not asking the question really in the right way. In that they should be bringing it to the Lord. When we are chastened, congregation, our souls should be humbled. And it's not a time for talking among ourselves, but it's a time to talking to the Lord. We should be making diligent search. We should be making an inquiry. We should be repenting of our sins. We should be asking the Lord for forgiveness. And he's ready to forgive. But we have to come to the place of confession. We have to ask for God's mercy. But obviously Israel is in no frame for that. They're in no frame for humbling themselves. They're in no frame for repenting. They don't do it until chapter 7. And so the elders have failing here. Because they should have been calling for prayer and fasting in a time of humiliation. And Joshua and the elders in his, in his day, they knew how to respond to calamity. And it wasn't anything like this. They'd only lost, what, 30, 36 men whenever they went up against Ai. But it was a great humiliation after the fall of Jericho. 36 men and, and they run away like frightened sheep. And Joshua and, uh, and the elders, they knew what to do. Joshua, he rent his clothes. He, he got into the condition of a mourner. He fell to the earth. And he put his face before the ark of the Lord in humiliation. They don't do that. That's not why they bring the ark of God for humiliation before. They don't do what Joshua did. He humbles himself. And, and notice it. All the elders of Israel, they do the very same thing. They're throwing up the dust on their head as they're prostrate before the ark of the Lord. Wherefore have you smitten us before Ai? Lord, why is it Israel are turning their back to their enemies and running away? There's none of that here in Ebenezer. Nothing like that at all. And Joshua, because he did that, he got an answer. They don't get an answer from God about this question because they're not asking God. They're not asking in humiliation. There's no contrition at all, no confession. But because Joshua confesses and because Joshua humbles himself, he, he gets an answer. He gets an answer. And things are turned around. And notice also that they're not turning to the word of God. 
Wherefore have the Lord smitten us before the Philistines? Let's turn to the Bible to find out. They have a Bible, you know. They have the Torah. They have the writings of Moses. The answer's there. They should know the answer. The elders, they're the men of the book. They should know the answers. They should know where to take the people to. We know the answer. Leviticus 26, we could go there. Congregation. Where God said, if you won't hearken to me, if you won't listen to me, if you won't do my commandments, I'll put my face against you, and you'll be slain before your enemies. There it is in black and white. Lord, we're being slain before our enemies. Leviticus 26. I'll put my face against you because of your sins. Because you don't keep my commandments. Because you're not walking with me. There it is. You'll even run away and you'll flee and there's no one running after you. This is why. And you'll have no power. He says, Leviticus 26, that's where I'm quoting from. You'll have no power to stand before your enemies. It's in the Bible. Why are they not turning them to the Bible? What kind of a session is this that doesn't turn the congregation to the Bible? And then Deuteronomy 28, it shall come to pass, if you won't hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God to do all of these commandments and the statutes, I'll put all of these curses upon thee. And here's one of the curses. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before your enemies. You'll go out one way to battle them and you'll be running away in seven different directions away from them. The answer's in the Bible. Wherefore are we smitten by the Lord before our enemies? Deuteronomy 28. It's all there. And not only that, they have a living prophet. They have Samuel now in Israel. There's one in touch with God. He has the word of God for all Israel. As we saw on another occasion... But they don't go to Shiloh to see Samuel or to get a word from God, from the prophet. There's no seeking God's word. So here we have the elders seem to have rejected the word of God and are in darkness and they only go from bad to worse because they're not turning to the word. There is an answer, you see, and it's a word to the law and to the testimony. And if they don't speak according to this word because there's no light in them, they're in darkness because they've rejected the word of God. God's word had the answer. And Samuel, whenever at last they do turn to him in later chapters, he has the answer. He brings the word of God and they go forth to victory against the Philistines. Totally different. But now they're, they're not in the mind for God's word. They're not in the mind for the Bible. It's too late when they go to Samuel because by then they have lost 30,000 men and they're totally humiliated before their enemies. And the Ark of the Covenant has gone through this total humiliation. So there we have the answer, but Israel didn't want the answer from the word. They come up with their own answer. Let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of God out of Shiloh and bring it to us. So that when it comes amongst us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. Do you see how quick that, that response seems to be? They only ask the question then, let us, let us go up and fetch the Ark of the Covenant. There's nobody to say, look, wait. Watch and pray. Let us humble ourselves first. 
There's none to say, let us repent. Let us seek God. Let us chasten ourselves. Let us implore for mercy. No, let us go and get the Ark of the Covenant and we'll make it fight for us. We'll bring God into the field so he has no choice but to fight for us. That's their attitude. They're forcing God's arm without humbling themselves and repenting and coming in the way that they ought to before God in utter humility. It's in humility that we have victory, brothers and sisters. So let this teach us, congregation, that when sickness or problems come or oppression from enemies arise against us or difficulties in life and oppression by Satan or whatever, that we must first and foremost humble ourselves and seek God's mercy for ourselves and God's forgiveness which we can have through our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when God humbles us, it's not a time for pride and stubbornness and self-righteousness. It's a time for Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, and according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my sin. So Israel thinks then that the problem is that they don't have the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with them. But the problem really is they don't have the Lord with them at all. They have the Lord against them. That's the problem. They think the ark will bring them God's presence. In actual fact, they have God's presence. But it's against them. And bringing the ark doesn't change that. Unless you're prepared to come in total humility and contrition before the throne of grace. And so they bring the ark of God and they actually don't realize that that's going to make things worse. 4,000 losses to 30,000 losses. It is true that it is a symbol of God's presence. We saw what the ark did in Samuel's life. The Lord came from that ark and called Samuel. Maybe even the elders even remembered that. But I think what really is in their mind is, is Jericho. You remember the centrality of the ark in the fall of Jericho and this great shout and the walls fell down? They're trying to emulate that. They want another Jericho. And maybe if they shout loud and plenty, they'll get another Jericho if they have the ark. And so that's what they do. They get the ark and they do this plenty of shouting. So the whole earth rings and shouts. Vibrates. And it does affect the Philistines. <laughs> but they don't fall to pieces like the people of Jericho. God sustains them. So that even in their blindness, they go out with courage against Israel. God is actually upholding the Philistines. Amazing thing. God's presence smote them in the first encounter. And he does the same in the second encounter too. They have God's presence. That's not the problem. The problem is God is not for them. That's the problem. For their sins. Look at how they trust in this object. When it cometh, it may save us. They're trusting to the ritual. They're trusting to the, the sacred object, the material object itself, the superstition. It is a powerful object, but it has to be considered a right in its symbolism and its covenantal message. God keeps covenant, but 
But Israel has to keep covenant too. And when they break covenant, God, God deals with them accordingly. And they're covenant breakers at the moment. And how often the church has resorted to material objects to trust them. I mean, it's all in through, through church history. They've brought out the crucifixes to face the enemy. They've, they've got into the churches and they've pulled out the relics of the saints, the saints' bones, and they've brought them out and they parade them in front of the army and they've brought them into the city. And, you know, God will deliver the city because the bones of his martyrs are here. And you begin to trust the sacred objects. I miss the Lord. It's so easy. And so how often the church resorts to, to some liturgy or some form or some material object or some church you know, connection that, oh, we couldn't go. It couldn't be the end of Shiloh. It couldn't be the end of the temple. It couldn't be the end of the church. You know, because the Lord has done all of this for us. You know, we can't trust in things. We can't trust in our past. We can't trust in what we have or what we have achieved. We can't trust in the sign of the cross. We can't trust in looking to pictures and relics and images and any of that. The danger with all of these things, you see, is people begin to trust in these things, which is why God doesn't allow them in the church, these kind of images, because people come to trust in them. And we should only trust in the Lord and put our hope in God. So trusting in images and trusting in material cultic objects of worship is just as bad as trusting in chariots and horses. It's all the same. And so the church has to endlessly battle its heart problem with idols, trusting other things. We have to keep checking ourselves and say our help is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. It appears to me also to be the possibility that these elders are being influenced by the army. You notice what the Holy Spirit says there in verse 4. So the, the people, that is the army, sent to Shiloh. Now, the Spirit stresses that. And is there not possibly here the idea that maybe the elders are just reacting to the army? That this is what the army wants? They've come in with the answer, but we need the ark amongst us. That's why the answers come up very quickly by the elders. Let's get the ark. Have they been influenced by the people? Instead of being influenced by the word of God? Instead of going to the scriptures, listening to the army coming back with their tale of woe, saying, this is what we need, this is what we need. Elders shouldn't listen to what the people say. That's the danger, you see. The people say, oh, we need this, we need that, we need the other. Well, you know, we need to do what the Bible says. What the word says. That's the only responsibility the elders have. To do what the word says. What, is, what does the Lord say? We're under obligation to God. We have to guard the flock. We have to feed the flock. We have to protect the flock. And the only way that we can do that is not listening to them as little wandering sheep, you know, who wander off, as it were. But we have to listen to the solid rock of the God's word. So maybe there's something of that here. Maybe the elders aren't so blind after all. They're just afraid of the people. And they know the people are hard and stubborn and, you know, we can't tell this people they need to humble themselves and pray and confess their sins. We can't tell them to confess their sins. They know very rightly they do not want to confess their sins. They know they love their idols and they do not want to give them up. The elders know the mind of the people. And they're afraid of challenging. So the people are very happy with what the elders say. And off they go to get the Ark of the Covenant because it's what everybody wants. But it's not the answer. Because it's not according to the word of God. 
And these elders are just like old Eli. Eli is a good man. He knows the Bible. He does good things. But when it comes to preaching against sin, when it comes to telling his sons what, you know, what is wrong and what they should be doing in their lives, when it comes to kick them out of the office, he, he just isn't able to do that. He's not faithful. And maybe these elders just, just reflect him. Good men. They ask the good question, but, you know, it just goes with the atmosphere of the people. Instead of following the word of God. So these elders are just like Eli, really. You see, there is a great responsibility on elders, isn't there? To rule faithfully. To give the people of God what they need. To be spiritually discerning. And not give in to man-made devices and imaginations that somehow the people think will quick fix the, the calamity and the situation that we're in. There, there are no quick fixes unless God comes in power among us. So elders are to rule in the fear of God according to the words and to feed the flock and shepherd the flock. But not necessarily to follow the flock in their strain from God's word. To lead them to come humbly before the Lord. And to urge them to seek the forgiveness of their sins through Christ. And to walk humbly with him. And to keep their covenant obligations with God. And to remember his table. The text then has a message for the elders of the congregation as well as the flock. Notice also the great title that the Holy Spirit gives to the ark. In verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts which dwelleth between the cherubim. That's the fullest title you'll find of the ark of God in the Bible. And here it is in the camp of Ebenezer. But none of the people are saying this, the full description of the ark of the covenant. It's the Holy Spirit who's saying this. The ark of the covenant is powerful. The ark of the covenant is God's throne. He does dwell between the cherubim. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is a sovereign God who reigns and rules. The Holy Spirit is saying, none of that is untrue. That, that's all very true. So whenever we think it's, it's the ark coming in here, don't, don't let us think, oh, it's just, a, just an empty idol. You might as well throw it in the bin. No, no, it's nothing like that. It is the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who does indeed dwell between the cherubim. God is mighty. But he's not to be toyed about with. He's not to be treated as some object that you can command and direct. And he'll work for you in any unbiblical method that you think you can use. No. He's to be followed and obeyed. And especially we are to prostrate and humble ourselves before him in his Son and Saviour Jesus Christ our Lord. For the covering of all our sins. He is holy. The problem is, Israel has forgotten this. Remember Hannah? None holy as the Lord, none beside thee. They've forgotten all of that. The problem is not in God. He keeps covenant. He has the power. He has the sovereignty. The problem is in Israel. They have broken covenant. And that they haven't given the Lord the right place in their lives that he ought to have. And brethren and sisters, at the end of the day, that's the greatest obligation upon us all just to give the Lord the right place in our lives the right place in our lives and to walk humbly before him 
And yes, it means to be honest and say sorry and confess our sins. But he readily forgives us. He does. But we have to walk humbly. And seek forgiveness through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the thing about this Ark of the Covenant is, it doesn't come alone. Notice who comes tagging along with it. Hophni and Phineas. They're always tagging along with it. Because they're the boys that have to carry it. But they're ungodly rascals. You have boys carrying the Ark. And God is determined to slay them. It's already determined. Read about it in chapter 2. The prophets came. God's determined to slay them. And these are the boys who are getting in. I mean, that just is a symptom of the apostasy of the whole nation. These are the boys they look to. These are the boys they follow. The apostates. The people's greatest mistake was fetching the ark. Because in fetching the ark, they brought the devil's men into the camp of Ebenezer. Even though they were priests. And bringing the ark they brought the destruction with them. Because the priests came with them. Anybody who's around these priests. Are just going to be like the priests themselves. Slain by God. So Israel's greatest enemy was not the Philistines. That's what we're saying. The greatest enemy was in the camp. The greatest enemy was the apostates. The greatest enemy were those who were against the word of God, living contrary to the word of God. In embracing the apostates, the priests, they rejected God. There's only one thing for apostates. And Eli wasn't prepared to do that. Ejection is the only answer. Ejection from the congregation. A man that is an heretic after the first And second admonition, reject. Reject and eject separation from them. Removal of the veil is necessary for the safety of the church. So these elders are very good at getting the ark in, but they're not so good at disciplining the ungodly. Those who have a form of godliness, don't they have the clothes? They wear the robes, but they deny the power thereof in their wicked lives. There's no ejection here, no rejection at all whatsoever, no turning away here. The embracing of the apostates. And the cost is great. Oh, the, the cost is great, congregation, if we embrace Satan's tools. It is. Whether on a church level or a national level, the cost is great to embrace those who God has appointed for destruction and who should have been destroyed. There'll be a sorry price to pay for that in the embracing of of those whom God has appointed to destruction for their wickedness. And so there is this foolish shout when the ark and the priests come in trying to reenact Jericho and all of that. They give a great shout. What does it say there? All Israel, all to a man, the whole army. All to a man. They shout it with a great shout. You see when you have the verb and the noun form coming together. It's, it gives emphasis. So they didn't only shout. They shout it with a shout. And then the Holy Spirit says it was a great shout. That was nothing like it. In fact we don't read of anything like that at all since the days of Jericho. So the Holy Spirit is connecting us with Jericho. But in that case the Lord was with them. But here he's not. And so there's this great shout. You know. 
They're going to be shouting again. There's going to be a great cry. And Eli said, what's all this tumult? What's all this crying? What's all this noise? It's a different tune then, isn't it? After the ark is taken. But a similar loudness. You know, the shout of self-confidence and the shout of rejoicing and the shout of victory is not pleasing to God if we are outside as well and doing that which is dishonouring to him. You can shout all you like. It's not shouting wins the day. It's not loudness wins the battle. Some of us preachers think that. We think if we shout and we're loud enough, we'll win the battle. We'll get into the hearts of the people. We'll do something. But you know, you begin to realise and discover shouting doesn't do it. It's a still small voice, isn't it? It's the Lord. The Lord has to speak to us. The Lord has to shout into our hearts. So the triumphing of the wicked is short. And this is sure short. The joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. And this is but for a moment. This shouting, this rejoicing. They don't shout again, I tell you, like this. Until they see their new king. And then we get this kind of language back again. That's the proper time to shout. When we see our king. When the king comes into the camp. When we have the presence of the king. The king, Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's the only time we can shout, brethren and sisters. When we have Christ. And let us do that. Because we do have Christ. We should shout a shout that causes the whole, the whole streets to vibrate. Because the king is in the midst of us. We have the kingly royal Lord Jesus Christ. So only the Lord can give, can give the victory here. And he has given us the victory. In his death and in his resurrection. And his ascension to glory at the right hand of God. As we'll see tonight as our Melchizedek high priest. The king. We can shout. Truly. And let us do so. And let us trust and rest in our King because that's the only way we can have a life of overcoming. That's the only way we can make next week different from last week when we fail and when we sin and when we got disheartened and discouraged and let the Lord down. The only way next week can be different is if we look to the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's ever look to Him. Let us pray.